and, and thus I, I continue to be bullish. But there's been others. We've had Sunshine 100 default over the weekend on $179 million of principal and interest payments. Uh, right. Guangdong-based Ian Group has warned shareholders that it, that it risks defaulting as well. It seems to be spreading. You know, look, the problem is universal within the sector. That's, that's certainly. And it's not really these companies' faults. They were playing by the established rules at that time. And the more successful companies are now finding that those, as those rules change, they're in more trouble. The risk for these companies, like Kaisa and Aoyan, is they might be more dispensable than Evergrande. And if saving Evergrande were to leave little or less room to save a Kaisa or an Aoyan, that might be an acceptable trade to regulators. Mm. So that's the fear. Okay, Brock, good to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you very much. That's Brock Silvers, who is Chief Investment Officer at Cayenne Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look around Asian stock markets this morning, looking rather weak following the sell-off on Wall Street on Friday. The ASX 200 in Australia down about a quarter percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan off 0.8 percent. Uh, the Cosby down also about 0.8% uh, in South Korea. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to lose about 250 points at the open this morning. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil rallying a little bit, up about uh, uh, 1% at the moment at $71.16 a barrel. And gold is trading right now at $1,784 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening uh, this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for back chats. Jim Gordon and Anna Fenton hosting uh, this morning. The weather forecast for today, fine and dry. Cool in the morning, maximum temperature of about 23 degrees. Fine and dry in the next few days. Uh, there is a red fire danger warning in force this morning. It's 17 degrees right now, 58% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Tunmun Hospital has apologized to the family of a man who died after medics failed to diagnose that he'd had a heart attack. It's also asked the coroner to investigate. Joanne Wong has the details. The 57-year-old man was rushed to the accident and emergency department by ambulance on Tuesday, reporting chest pain and twitching. The man had a history of stroke as well as hypertension and cardiac disease. The hospital says the patient's condition initially improved, but electrocardiogram testing later showed irregularities indicating a heart attack. The doctor on call prescribed only drugs to stop him vomiting. The man complained of chest pain again and was taken to the cardiac unit where his condition deteriorated and he died on Wednesday. The hospital said it was very concerned and had reinforced to his doctors the need to pay attention to changes in ECG results and consult their seniors if in doubt. Health officials reported nine imported COVID-19 cases yesterday, including six people who were in quarantine on the cargo vessel Glory Sky. Thousands of people have been demonstrating in the Belgian capital Brussels against the country's COVID pass and plans to make vaccinations compulsory for healthcare workers. Police estimated 8,000 people participated. Some people explained their reasons for joining the march. 
I am a natural being and I want to choose over my own uh, body and my uh, own free will and that's why I'm here. The pressure is enormous. As adults we don't have to be vaccinated but the pressure is enormous from from peers, from neighbors, from colleagues, from friends, even inside families and, co and, and couples. So I think the pressure is enormous. There is a big divide in the population and it's, uh, that's why I'm here. The Taliban rulers of Afghanistan have denied an allegation by the United States and several other countries that they're responsible for the targeted killings of former members of the security forces. But a former colonel said that he and his former colleagues were not safe. I'm going to wait for about one more month and then I, I'm going to flee also and uh, I'm going to escape from here because the situation is getting worse day by day. I don't want to be killed like others because I have a family, I have small children, so either I will go to Iran or Pakistan. The Speaker of the House of Commons in Britain has promised to raise allegations of drug use within its building with the police. Sir Lindsay Hoyle described as deeply concerning a newspaper report that traces of cocaine had been found in the Palace of Westminster. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. To start the week on Back Chat, we're talking about sports and national identity. And later on, the Chimsa Choi Clock Tower. A 29-strong delegation of mainland Olympians has concluded a three-day visit to the territory after putting on displays of their sporting prowess and answering questions from fans. The top athletes, including Su Bing Tian, the first uh, Asian-born sprinter to break the 10-second barrier in the 100 metres, and five-time Olympic table tennis gold medal winner Ma Long. Earlier, the chief executive, Carrie Lam, urged, urged uh, schools to promote sport as a way of bolstering uh, young people's sense of national identity. And after 9.15 this morning, we're talking about the iconic clock tower in Chimsa Choi, where the bell will be rung again this Thursday for the first time in 71 years. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Joining us uh, now for our main topic uh, in our studio here, we have uh, Mervyn Cheung, who's the chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group. Uh, and also on the line, we have uh, Patrick Lau, uh, professor at the Department of uh, Sports, uh, Physical Education and Health at the Baptist University. And we'll have uh, more guests on the programme uh, after nine o'clock. Um, uh, uh, Mervyn, then, uh, good morning. Uh, good morning. Thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming to the studio. So what role, what role do you think uh, sport uh, has to play in promoting national identity? Um, uh, sporting activities, um, uh, I think, are very um, healthy thing for 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 young people. Um, they can train young people to be um, decent, um, diligent, responsible, and also uh, caring for others. So in terms of uh, national identity, um, sporting activities 
or the participation in, in them will especially um, in connection with uh, efforts uh, from, from the mainland will generate the kind of awareness uh, on the part of uh, young people uh, of what's uh, taking place outside of Hong Kong, especially in China. And then through uh, the kind of uh, interactions or, or experience sharing, like what has taken place over the past two days, uh, young people, uh, especially those in the school community, will come to appreciate more of the good things and also of the achievements uh, made by their counterparts uh, uh, on the mainland uh, well, across the world. So I think uh, this is a, a very good uh, a kind of uh, information, uh, 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 awareness, and also a appreciation exercise, which will uh, help young young people to understand what, uh, at least in part, what's taking place in in China, and what they can uh, participate in, as well as contribute towards uh, their motherland. Okay, so let's bring it back to grassroots terms, in very very simple terms. How does sport, which is often individualistic, often very competitive, often very cutthroat, contribute to diligence, decency and caring, just at an absolute grassroots level? Uh, I think, uh, yes, that's true. It's a, it's a it's kind of a competing. Because it's uh, kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? You know? yeah. <laughs> but then in the process, uh, they also learn to understand each other more, and uh, especially... Um, the kind of values and good things that uh, the other side uh, 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 hold in stock. So uh, anyway, I think uh, this is a very good, uh, uh, you know, uh, understanding uh, and, and, and also, uh, you know, a com comprehending exercise. Uh, uh, Carrie Lam was uh, speaking uh, as the Education Bureau, Bureau was uh, updating its uh, values and education framework, right, and uh, added uh, three new values. That's a uh, law abidingness, um, empathy and diligence. Uh, Mrs Lam said that uh, during their training, so athletes would need to cultivate many of the values highlighted in the framework, such as perseverance and commitment. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, well, I, I think... Uh, the, the, the new values that acted to, uh, to the uh, values education framework, that, like what you've just mentioned, especially uh, the top priorities, uh, diligence, you know, uh, for, for young people. But, but Hong uh, Kong kids have always been diligent. Isn't the problem to stop them doing homework, not to encourage them to do more? They might be diligent in, in, in only a certain, uh, 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 certain respects, especially in terms of uh, the competition for, for, for good grades in examination and also uh, uh, you know, I, uh, for ideal results in the allocation of uh, school places. But then uh, diligence should also be uh, spread to other uh, worthwhile things, such as helping others, uh, uh, respect others, and also commitments. Um, but don't we think we they're already guarantee. really yeah. good? I mean, Hong Kong people are famed for all of this. Isn't, aren't these qualities already part of the national identity already? Um, in general, I think uh, that, that's true, but uh, there, there is always room for, for, for improving. So, um, what, uh, well, because in these days, we, we do find that uh, some young people have become uh, uh, overindulgent in, 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 in certain things, like... Uh, uh, video games uh, you know, and, and, and those things. But Hong, but Hong Kong promotes esports, and Mrs. Lam is very, very keen on them. 
Yeah. Uh, well, keen on that doesn't mean that you 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 should become indulgent in in it because uh, what we expect students to 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 have is is to have a balanced life uh, with. Uh, I think uh, some kind of uh, equal access and uh, equal enjoyment of, of different things in life. Apart from school education, they need to participate in sports. They need to participate in, say, voluntary uh, community services. And, uh, you're helping others, you know, all these things. So uh, we, all the time, I think uh, most people would focus on students' in, in, uh, diligence in terms of uh, their the the you know uh, what uh, the the results and also the progress in in the academic study in school and how many trophies they've won uh, on uh, you know in in various competitions now this is not the only direction uh, they they should be heading for okay also with us uh, on the line we have Patrick Lau, professor at the Department of Sport Physical Education and Health at the Baptist University a uh, good morning to you good morning Jimena. Um, thanks. Uh, you were speaking earlier on our Hong Kong Today program. Um, you were saying how the the visit of the uh, the mainland athletes uh, had gone very well. Um, how much of an inspiration do you think that will be to uh, to young sports sports people here? It has been a successful visit since 1990s, if you recall, even before the 1997. But due to the uh, past two years' social unrest. So it, it come up uh, a kind of a certain change of the of the atmosphere. So I believe it just get back to the original, say, the sport achievements in China men athletics enlighten Hong Kong's emotions by the past decades. Yeah, I think they're doing very well, especially they mix the Hong Kong in the athletics and perform with them in different uh, occasions. It creates a sense of uh, uh, commitment, involvement. And uh, at the end, of course, the lesson identity, the patriotic inclusion. So I think they are doing quite well this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, everybody would be uh, very pleased to see uh, the country doing well. Um, do you think there is perhaps uh, some area of uh, confusion? Because, of course, uh, Hong Kong has its own uh, Olympic sports team, doesn't it? You mean the competition between Hong Kong, Hong Kong team and, and China? Y yes, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because uh, Hong Kong team is a very, very special and unique um, uh, development from the history of uh, being the colonial team in the before 1997. And Hong Kong could be the only team allowed it to compete with, with the, uh, their own country. So um, I recall my study in 208 uh, Beijing Games. I conducted a study to investigate the uh, national identity changes uh, among the three regions, uh, including China, mainland, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And the findings demonstrate that um, the place they were born and they stay make a big difference, even they are so-called Chinese. So when we look at how China, mainland, they have strongest national identity. And when we uh, compare to uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan, they have a little bit lower during the games. And the time factors also play a significant role. During the game and after the role, it seems during the games, no matter where they live, uh, uh, the Taiwanese or Hong Kong people or China mainland Chinese, they show the strongest uh, sense of belonging. Uh, it doesn't matter who they, who they are. So uh, the time factor and, and uh, birth 
and uh, residential place make a big difference. At the end, the whole thing city is the main effect they can create. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at British football, for example, if you looked at the average British football team, it wouldn't be your traditional idea of what British people look like because they come from countries all over the world and often have just been bought in to play. So how does that commercialization of sport and that sense of identity play out when you have people, and this has happened with Chinese basketball players playing professionally overseas as well, how does that translate then into a sense of identity when commercialization and money comes into it and playing for other teams in other countries? <laughs> and um, and produce a very complicated relationship between different concepts like commercialization, competitiveness, and the star effect. So um, let's look at the star effect first. Why, why uh, the uh, NBA or the or the English um, Premier League sometimes they recruit the Chinese player over there? It's very simple uh, phenomenon that once we recruit the Chinese players into different uh, sport leagues, then the local market, which is China, will block us and buy their the, uh, satellite and, and the live broadcasting right. At the same time, the um, souvenirs will be very popular in local. So this kind of very cost-effective uh, marketing has been very popular in those uh, events I just mentioned. On the other hand, when we look at national identity, that's another uh, identity called sport identity. In one of my researches also demonstrate uh, for those people that have stronger sport identity, it means they see themselves more sporty and they see themselves an athlete will demonstrate more and higher national identity to, the, to the, the countries they belong. So if they, they uh, participate in more sport, and if they have high knowledge in that particular sport, and, and it will, uh, at, at the end, result in stronger national identity. So this kind of uh, um, relationship would be um, take action in, in this kind of um, phenomenon, especially for Olympics. For the commercialization, I believe, uh, I get back to the questions and asked before my, my interview is that uh, how we see the Olympism or, or sportsmanship can uh, help. Because at the moment, over-commercialization has been happening and over-competitiveness is also happening. So we should look into the healthy relationship between the elitism in sport and the uh, sportsmanship. Uh, if we emphasize too much on commercial profit making and uh, winning at any cost, it will hurt and not contribute to national identity. So we have to maintain a balance between the commercialization and the Olympism, especially sportsmanship. So how do we balance that? Who's to be the Olympic czar of balance in that one? Uh, this is out of the hand of government because when we look at the Olympics as the highest, most competitive and successful achievement among athletes, Actually, Olympic didn't produce any financial rewards to, to the athletes. This is only a trophy, but unfortunately, the commercialization see the market of the successful athletes in Olympics. So they will uh, give them a lot of endorsement, a lot of finance support after they win the, the medals. So um, in the modern society, I believe uh, this is kind of self-monitoring. Uh, um, the government cannot do anything 
but uh, but the athletes may contribute to present more positive images. For example, they they should emphasize more sports in terms of winning and the courses, especially when we look at the records of the drug abuse. So all over the world, the athletes using different drugs illegally to enhance the performance to win to win. So I believe what we can do is trying to do it in the educational foundation. Of course, when we're always looking in the education, it's a long, long-term effect. It, it, it must start in early life stages of the athletes. So um, I believe the, the schools, especially the athletes and coaches during trainings, they must transfer this kind of beliefs they, they have to do right according to the Olympic uh, spirit. Mm. Okay, a couple of messages on our Facebook page. TC writes... <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Carrie Lam should be careful about uh, promoting nationalism with sport. Currently, Hong Kong competes uh, separately from the Chinese national team. That may be uh, breeding ground for localism. An example in my country, a controversial decision in 1955 to suspend a French-Canadian hockey icon was seen as a watershed moment in the separatist movement in Quebec. And Henry writes... Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, sports and national identity has been an integral part of the history of China and the Chinese. In the recent uh, riot, many have said they were not Chinese, but Hong Kongers and those uh, so-called pro-democracy legislators like Claudia Mo called for shunning mainland tourists and... Uh, uh, disuse of simplified Chinese. There is an urgent need to address the national identity issue. The Chinese uh, Olympics sports team have performed excellently and people could easily identify with the national team since few, if any, hate sports but would only rejoice at uh, the Chinese team winning so many medals. Um, yeah, I mean, um, China actually came, uh, actually won 38 gold medals in the last Olympics, uh, just one behind uh, the United States. Uh, that must be hugely inspiring to to sports fans right across the country. Patrick? Yes, um, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, you asked me how, how we see the Hong Kong team when they compete uh, against the Chinese team. So um, this is uh, very unique, as I mentioned. But at the same time, when we look at the national games, we, we don't actually discourage the local teams to, to uh, advance, to excel. So it depends how you see yourself. So not only the national identity concept has to be activated, but at the same time, the cultural uh, uh, um, identity should be emphasized and valued. Yeah. So. The interaction effect between national identity and cultural identity should be uh, uh, altogether mentioned during this process. So when we look at uh, um, Chinese national identity, when Hong Kong people look at themselves as a, a cultural Chinese, that will help to stress and, and enhance their national identity. Without the cultural background and the foundation, the national identity would be quite difficult to, to be enhanced or activated. I think this is true that when we look at how the Chinese team, when they won 38 gold medals this time in Tokyo, that if you see the Chinese compete with other cultural people, other countries' people, athletes, then we will see we are more Chinese. But when we look at the Chinese team against Hong Kong team, then we look at, oh, I'm Hong Kong people. I would like to see Hong Kong success. So this is okay 
because if you look at the huge countries like China, India, then you have so many uh, races, so many dialects, cultures, subcultures. Then it doesn't have any conflict between Hong Kong and China because when we look at the Sichuan Shanghai team, they will do the same thing. But when we look at the high level of culture, then we will uh, align with the uh, cultural identity that we are Chinese. And when we look at the national identity with sports, we will also uh, uh, consider we are Chinese and the national identity would be enhanced. So it should not be a conflict. On the other hand, it should be treated as a different levels of identity. And the only important thing is which one is more uh, important to you and have high priority. Mm. Yeah, interestingly, if you add uh, the fencer Chen Kaolong's uh, gold medal, which he won for Hong Kong, to the mainland total, that would be 39 medals all for China and the yeah. US, 39 yeah. golds all, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, um, uh, Mervyn Cheung, uh, yes. so Anna mentioned uh, earlier about this concept about uh, diligence. Um, we know that Hong Kong students uh, are extremely diligent. Um, that is mostly, though, in the context... Uh, you know, in people's perception of academic work, uh, do you think there should be more emphasis now on sporting ability and uh, sporting excellence? Yeah, I, I do think so because, um, in, well, in, in fact, um, a person's uh, achievements should and cannot be measured solely on the basis of their academic attainments. Um, attainments. Uh, happen on on different fronts and and in these days we are stressing a holistic approach and holistic uh, achievement in 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 education so uh, i think a student's interest their um the perception of things and you know all these things uh, should also be diversified so that they can have a uh trials on you know uh, on different things you know to really identify their interests, their capability, their strengths, so that uh, they can plan well ahead uh, in terms of their career and, and also in terms of their commitments to a family, society, and also uh, the nation. So let's come back to grassroots again. How many periods of sport and PE are going to be added to the curriculum to uh, achieve this? Because I believe the number of periods of sport and PE have actually been reduced in recent years. Uh, it may happen uh, in, in some schools which uh, cut down on involvement in, in, in physical education. But uh, in general, I think uh, for, 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 for the Hong Kong society, uh, we, we, we do notice... Uh, a steadily growing um, appreciation of the values of sports. Um, of course, uh, uh, we we must uh, thank the uh, uh, say the school uh, school leaders for doing this in 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 in, uh, in their daily curriculum. And at the same time, uh, it is very important that the government will channel more support to the sporting field so that students. Will will uh, will have uh, more opportunities to get in touch with uh, real real sporting activities to see if they they can develop some kind of interest in in certain disciplines. And talking about say um, the the question of uh, say uh, financial rewards for for medalists, um, I I also have the feeling that uh, is it uh, is it that uh, we are placing. Uh, you know, too much emphasis 
on a kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 financial uh, rewards from uh, you know, scoring uh, you know, good grades, etc., in, 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 uh, in open uh, competitions, especially, at, say, uh, 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 at the regional and also international levels. Um, for, for sportsmen in Hong Kong, it seems that uh, uh, they suffer over the years uh, from a, a, a lack of clear vision about their future. Uh, they spend years in getting coached on, 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 on uh, so, so, uh, the kind of uh, you know, so, uh, sporting commitments. But then when, when they finish uh, their, their, their golden age, they, when they look back, they miss a lot of opportunities on schooling, uh, on uh, professional or semi-professional training and all these things. So, uh, of course, uh, we, we do have some, uh, you know, some of them, but uh, there's only a minority who continue to do well in, in, in sports and then to become uh, continuously famous in, in, in the field. Uh, that would give them quite, 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 quite a good life you know, in, 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 in the remaining years of, of their career. But that, that way they need to monetize it then, don't they? They can't just be great, great sportsmen with no income. Uh, so we need to um, do some kind of provision or planning for their career. For instance, after their, their uh, sporting career, they, uh, they can be arranged or given opportunities for higher education, for uh, professional training, in their career life. So uh, that would uh, put them rest assured that they can go into uh, the, uh, the sporting field. And after that, uh, they can also uh, you know, rest assured that they will have a future okay. for their career. Okay, thanks, uh, Mervyn. We've got to take a short break. Uh, we're coming up to the news summary at uh, 9 o'clock. A quick look at the weather. Fine and dry today. Uh, cool uh, in the morning. Top temperature around 23 degrees. Uh, the outlook uh, still cool uh, tomorrow morning. Currently, it's 17 degrees, 57% humidity. The red fire danger warning is in effect. And welcome back to Back Chat with Anna Fenton and me, Jim Gould. And this morning, we're talking about uh, sports and national identity. And uh, just before we uh, return to our guests, uh, a couple of uh, emails here. Uh, in fact, one's an email, one is a message on our Facebook page, um, uh, TC writes on Facebook, uh, fact check, Hong Kong isn't the only place that can compete against its own country in international competitions. For example, Puerto Rico and Bermuda. Okay, thank you, TC. Um, uh, Guy writes, um, I would like to take this opportunity to remember my friend and former Royal Hong Kong Police colleague, Mike Field, former... Uh, Hong Kong 800 metres record holder and 1964 Tokyo Olympian who passed away recently in South Africa. Mike was also a former Hong Kong amateur jockey and his wife Jean, a Hong Kong representative hockey player, RIP both. Uh, that from uh, Guy Shearer, who's uh, chairman of the Royal Hong Kong Police, uh, old and bold. Um, thank you, uh, Guy. Um, 
We have uh, with us uh, in our studio Mervyn Cheung, a chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group. And on the line now, uh, Karen Lowe, who's a sport and performance psychologist uh, of Inner Edge and a certified uh, mental performance consultant of the Association for Applied Sport Psychology. Uh, Karen Lowe, good morning to you. Morning. Hi. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so we're talking about sports and national identity and that in the context of uh, motivation. Um, of course, we've just had the, the visit by the delegation of mainland uh, Olympians, which caused a uh, uh, well, uh, great deal of um, public uh, interest, uh, enthusiasm about that. Um, to what extent do you think... Um, uh, national achievement is a motivation for young sporting uh, enthusiasts as opposed to the need to better your own personal uh, best? Um, is it m m How much of it is an individual thing and how much of it is a team thing? Well, I think it's, it's both, to be honest. Um, I think being part of any team, whether it's a national team or whether it's a regional team or even if it's just a school team, Assuming that there is connection uh, between individuals within the team, and as long as the sense of belonging uh, within the team is high, then I would, I would predict, and we could predict that there is a sense of relatedness, and and that could improve uh, uh, our motivation in in in, in terms of uh, you know whatever we do, whether it's sport performance or even when you see a group of individuals who are very connected to working towards the same goal, so. Uh, within the context of motivation, um, there is a difference between, you know, groups competing and teams competing. So if we, and, and there's a subtle differences between the two. So group is more of, you know, the, the individuals forming, you know, for a reason or a cause. So it's kind of like a special interest group doing one thing together. Whereas for a team, you know, if we think about a national team or, or a school team or a regional team, um, it's, it's about coming together for a common goal. Uh, but on the basis that there is connection. So if there is that connection and relatedness and that sense of belonging, that identity becomes stronger and will compete for the team. And, and that's when we get more motivated to, to, to perform better. So the, the brain chemical we're talking about here is oxytocin, isn't it? The, the bonding chemical. <laughs> so um, if we're, we're, we're brewing up the oxytocin, if we take one step backwards, how do we get the parents to buy in on the oxytocin front since, after all, we're all talking about, you know, serious training for kids from very young. Now, my understanding from talking to coaches is the biggest challenge in Hong Kong is to get the parents on side with the, you know, the balance between the academic performance and the sports focus. How do you, how do you foster that, first of all, before it translates through to the kids? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a need. There's, there's a definite need for more communication between parents and coaches. Sometimes I think it's because the perspectives are different and because the roles are different, and that creates miscommunication and that creates, you know, differences in perspectives. And they're not really on the same page when it comes to, you know, being involved in sport or being mm. involved in academics. And so I think that it's important that there is communication and that, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, what do you think, you know, why are you putting your kid in, in your sport? Like, what are you looking for? What do you hope to, to, to get out of participating or being involved in this sport? I think is very important. So going back to sort of the motive, and, and of course, as coaches, it's important for them to express 
to the parents what their philosophy is in in coaching as well and what they hope to get and what they hope their uh, the, the the children or their athletes get out of sport um so that they're more on the same page before they actually begin so my at least from my perspective I always encourage coaches to have a, have a meeting, you know, pre-season or in the beginning of the season with the parents so that they're on the same page before everything uh, is, is, is on track or, 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 or to prevent, you know, anything to, 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 to go wrong. If, if that makes any sense. <laughs> right, right. So, so Mervyn, I think yes. it would be fair to say that it's just as important for the audience to get on board with the national identity as the actual sports men and women themselves, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, uh, yeah, please, uh, Karen, please. Karen, uh, Karen Lowe, do you, would you like to answer that? No, sorry, uh, no, I, I, um, sure. So, so I think, okay. I think, um, I think for any... Uh, a team or for for and for anyone uh to to want to uh, uh be more involved in sport i'm not sure if i that that answers your question but i think but i think that uh uh we do need to have not just that sense of belonging though i think uh if if one has to be motivated in their sport um they it's it's also about having that competence uh the feeling of competence as well and and also that sense of autonomy for for one to be motivated to perform well um if 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 we're talking about from from the athlete's perspective wanting to wanting to uh, wanting to be motivated to perform better now we've just had the visit from the mainland olympian team but of course uh, hong kong did very well in uh, tokyo 2020 where, which took place uh, this summer um the delayed olympic games uh, six medals in all uh, one gold two silvers three bronzes um how do you account for that uh, improvement over past performances First of all, I think it's a it's a great result, and and we've done we've certainly done very well. We've done very well in nurturing our young athletes. Um, I think um, it's 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 um, the fact that we have been working very hard uh, as 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 a team as a, as a Hong Kong team. Um, I, I I I would argue that just from my ob- ob- uh, observations that. Um, there has been a lot of work that has been put into making sure that the kids understand that it could be doing, you know, that doing sport and being involved in sport and competing in sport is about being happy and being, you know, and finding their, maximizing their potential. So it's about doing this for yourself and not so much doing this for someone else. And so at least when I work with my athletes, I try to uh, talk to them and, and I try to chat with them on on, the, on their perspective. Is this making you happy? You know, what is what what motivates you to continue with your sport? And if I notice that they're put it, putting too much focus on, let's say, it's extrinsic rewards or uh, seeing sport as a means to an end, that's, that, that to me is a red flag. And, 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 and that's when... Um, we would work on finding sort of that intrinsic motivation and finding, you know, different ways to make sure that they are, uh, you know, intrinsically happy when, when they're doing the, the thing that, 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 that they're currently doing. Mm. 
Um, Mervyn Chung, yes. obviously schools have an enormous role to play in nurturing young talent, young yes, sporting certainly. talent. Uh, um, a lot of the schools in Hong Kong, though, don't have their own playing fields, do they, because of the shortage of space, the shortage of land? Um, how should that issue be addressed? Well, t- uh, this this does not, not apply to uh, the school sector. In fact, it applies to... The, the whole territory of Hong Kong in terms of uh, uh, enhanced uh, sporting development. Uh, well, this is really a big hindrance uh, in terms of the values and, and, and also the kind of, uh, say, uh, for, for track, uh, track and field uh, uh, coaching. So um, I think uh, since uh, KRM is not embarking on... Um, uh, redevelopment of the territory on a, on a massive scale. Um, so better provision or, or at least a better demarcation of uh, uh, in terms of the uh, 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 in terms of a spatial distribution of of the area that is available should be made. Now, uh, take one example: uh, the 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 old Kai Tak Airport area. Now, we uh, the government has uh, has uh, you know carved out. Uh, uh, a sizable plot of land uh, for developing a, a sports complex. So I hope that this ca- uh, will continue in the future whenever an area or, or, or a district is up for, for, rede- uh, for major redevelopment. And then for schools, and I hope that, uh, for instance, schools with better facilities or colleges and universities with a very good uh, physical and, and uh, and, and, other, and other results and, and other uh, resources for sports training and also uh, sports development might try, uh, might try to be made available uh, for 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 schools that do not have similar facilities to use uh, because uh, that will help quite a lot uh, uh, to uh, help uh, that will help quite a lot of schools to to develop uh, their, their their sports program. Yeah, yes, because uh, Mrs. Lam also talked about uh, the, well two new initiatives. Uh, there's, uh, uh, let me see, a bachelor programs in sports and recreational management uh, provided by the the Metropolitan University and the Technological and Higher Education Institute uh, of Hong Kong, um, and it's hoped that uh, the courses uh, will providing uh, 70 places uh, will help more talented athletes to achieve uh, sporting success. So there, there are a number of new programmes um, coming on stream. Um, yeah, uh, Karen Lowe, so how well do you think uh, Hong Kong is doing in terms of the uh, provision of, uh, well, not only sporting facilities, but um, uh, sporting uh, academic courses at, uh, at schools and uh, our higher education institutions? Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's glowing, and it's certainly where we're on the right track. Um, we do see a lot of sports science programs and, and sport education programs or phys ed programs uh, that are available to students, and um, that's, that's, when, um, that's when students get the opportunity to not just learn uh, uh, to be an athlete, mm-hmm. but, but more so to, 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 to look at sport in different angles. So if you are in a phys ed program or if you are in a sports science program, 
even though you might not become a coach in the future, you might learn about coaching philosophies or you might learn about nutrition and that might help you understand sport in, in, in different perspectives. So I think it's always a good thing that, that these programs are offered. Uh, yes. Um, the publicly funded universities uh, in Hong Kong have already started uh, a, 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 a very limited vision program giving priority to uh, applicants with, uh, with outstanding achievement in, in, in sports. I think uh, this, uh, this uh, very small admission quota can be appropriately ex- expanded so that uh, students uh, or well, uh, athletes who, finished, uh, uh, who, who have finished their, their, say, their, their career in, in, in sports can be put back to formal education and training in order that they can d- develop their, their second career. Mm-hmm. And going back to an, uh, your earlier question, uh, why the, um, the Hong Kong players have scored so high successes in the Tokyo Olympics? I think that has a lot to do with the uh, sports investment strategy of the government. So over the last decade, uh, the government did uh, provide a lot of investments uh, in, in, in the sports development. So um, now uh, it has turned out to be the, the harvest period for all these previous efforts and, and, and also uh, funds that, uh, that, that have been uh, given to, uh, to the sports field. Mm, mm, which suggests that we could see uh, more success in the future. Yeah, it's likely if the government continues with the, uh, with the initiative and also its uh, determination to boost development in, in, in this field. And, uh, well, I think uh, we, we have confidence. We should have got confidence in it because uh, uh, we, we are having, I think, uh, in, in about two to three years' time, uh, uh, should be two years before the... Uh, the Paris meet again, uh, 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 an upgraded uh, uh, sports complex in the, in the present uh, uh, training institute in Chatin. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the construction of a 97,000 uh, square foot uh, building at the Sports Institute there. Uh, targeted for, yeah, that's right, before Paris 24, it should be, should be, all be ready. Uh, Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Um, Mervyn Chung there, the the chairman of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group. Uh, uh, Thank you very much to Karen Lowe, a sport and performance psychologist of uh, Inner Edge and uh, um, mental performance consultant of the Association for Applied Sports Psychology of the uh, United States. And uh, before nine o'clock, we heard from Patrick Lau, a professor at the Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health at the Baptist University. And so for the last um, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we'll turn our attention to our second topic. And that is the clock tower, the iconic uh, clock tower in Chimsa Choi, where the clock tower bell is going to be heard again this week for the first time in 71 years. Uh, And uh, joining us to talk about it, uh, we have uh, on the line uh, Amy Ho, who's a senior manager for Hong Kong uh, Cultural Centre at the Leisure and Cultural Services Department, who's responsible for the uh, piazza and uh, waterfront management. Uh, uh, Good morning to you. Good morning, I'm Amy. Yes, uh, good morning, uh, uh, Amy Ho. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, You're 
welcome. So, um, yeah, very interesting. So, so the bell is going to be rung again for the first time in 71 years. Uh, um, I believe it, this is to mark the centenary of the bell, uh, which was first uh, heard in 1921. Um, can you take us through um, what, what, what happened in the, the intervening uh, 70 years since the bell stopped ringing? Uh, why, why was that? And, um, and how have you been able to um, get it back into working condition? Well, um, it's, it's uh, quite unbelievable, actually, uh, because we are trying to make something new and make something heard at the Harbour Front. And, you know, we have installed the, the bronze bell in 1921, mm-hmm. and <coughs> this year it is the 800th anniversary of the bell's operation. And we ask ourselves a question, shall we keep the clock tower this iconic landmark silent at this next hundred years. And that drives us to think about how to revive the clock tower's function, including finding the chime of the bell and, and do some experiments actually to, to install the bell again to rain and, and try something maybe a, te- a technology would, would help us. So we ask all these questions that drives us to a journey to uh, England and also with the help of the uh, Antiquities and Monuments Office. We um, gather together all these um, structural engines to study how we could install the, the, uh, the bell back, back to the bell chamber. But it was not quite success because um, some reinforcement was done and the bell chamber where the bell was hung was um, now in, in Congress lab. So we talked with the UK side, our bell foundry, uh, the Taylor family who, who cut the bell for us uh, to find some solutions. And after some searching in the historical record, uh, we, we found some, some, um, something interesting was that by the time when the uh, bell was cast in 1919, another bell in, in, was uh, cast in the same way, in, with the same material and the same same group of people was sent uh, between 1919 to 1921. So we decide to revive the bell chime, which is in E flat and 623 hertz uh, in, a te- uh, in a digital way. So the journey begins with a chime system to be installed at the bell chamber, and then we make the chime again to be heard in the next 100 years. I think this is meaningful because no one has heard about the chime before and it is a meaningful way to celebrate the centenary uh, and the anniversary of the bell so everyone, this generation, could hear again and it can add vibrancy to the Harper Front as well. So I'm a bit confused. Is this the real bell really chiming or a fake bell with high-tech chimes? Or a mixture. This is another identical bell cast by the same mm. real bell real bell. Where's the original one? Where's what happened the to the original, original one? The original one is now displaying in the clock tower ground floor. The mechanism and the gear were gone, and no one has heard about the uh, the chime before because it went wrong in the 1950s uh, with the clock, so they were not matching. And, and the whole mechanism was, was uh, taken away by that time. 
then it ceased functioning after that, and the, and the bell was transferred to the um, KCR uh, Kowloon Central Railway Corporation and several stations for display only. And now we we ha- um, have the the original bell placed on the ground floor of the clock tower, but we are not reviving a, a fake one or uh, just uh, doing something like synthesizer. The Bell Foundry in UK, they are finding the job books um, when they have cast many bells, which some of them are identical with the same tune. What we do mind is the tune and and the sound of the bell and the resonance to produce uh, as a chime, not the fake chime to produce in the in the Okay, Chinese so system. can you yeah. sing us the chime? What will it sound like? It's an E-flat. Right, right, okay. And, and it is shine on our. They're just a single it's a t- bong. It's single not, a, not a tune. Yeah. Right, right, right. Not the Westminster. Okay. Not the Westminster okay. one. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. Great. So. Um, so what's the idea going forward? Are you going to um, sound the bell uh, every day from next Thursday or, or will it be a one-off or what's the plan? We have a ceremony to activate the chiming system at 6 o'clock on, on uh, uh, Thursday. Mm-hmm. And after that, it will chime daily in a uh, majority of the daytime. And we have the exact operation hour to be announced very soon. I see. Will it be oh, on the hour yeah. every hour? Every hour, mm. and we check that um, uh, before the, ch- the bell was chimed every hour and chime on hour. Chime on hour means when it's one o'clock, it chime once, right. and, and two o'clock, it twice, and so on. Mm. So, right. Yeah. Now, is there a chiming bell? I think there is on the other side, isn't there, at Central Pier? Yes, uh, before uh, the Queen's Pier, uh, mm. the yeah, but but then I am not sure uh, how they would they would um, take care of that bell. Mm. Mm. Perhaps they have some 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 something done, or 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 later the policy would would be would be in in place. But that is not under our purview. Okay, and you're going to have a, a, an exhibition on the centenary of the bell, uh, which will be held in the foyer of the cultural centre, right, until December the twenty fourth. Is that right? Yeah, that's mm. an exhibition to tell people some hidden story of the bell, how it was cast, and and the, the uh, transformation of the city, and it it injects some uh, attack elements, and we have a composer uh, who composed some. Uh, like a city symphony to bring uh, the visitor to this hundred years of stories. Mm-hmm. So you've mm-hmm. got the twin of the original one, really here. Uh, yes. Right. And and the chime is digitalized in right. the timing system installed back in the bell chamber. Yeah. Right. That's a, a a modern solution there, Anna. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a modern yeah. solution yeah. for this generation. Mm, mm, great. And tell, just tell us a little bit about the, the clock tower itself, because uh, uh, it, it is quite an iconic structure, isn't it? Uh, yes, mm. it was part of the former Calvin Canton Railway Calvin Terminus, and um, the the clock tower actually was erected in 1919, and the, the bells and, and the four clocks were operating in 1921. So um, mm. until the Japanese occupation period, they did operate between 1941 to 45, 
and and resumed operation after 1945. But the malfunctioning of the battery-operated clocks results in unsynchronized clock time and chime, so the operation ceased in 1950. And in 1960, the government announced relocation of the current terminus to Hong Kong because of the very many passengers. So from 1976, the bell was moved away to the new Hong Kong railway station and displayed in several places in, in the uh, railway, railway stations. Mm. The, the current terminus was then demolished in 1978, leaving behind only the clock tower. In 1990, because of the historical significance, uh, the clock tower was declared a monument. And later in uh, 2010, to celebrate the, the railway surface for 100 years, Kowloon Canton uh, Railway Corporation donated the bell back to, to the government and it is now displaying in the ground floor of the clock tower for, for the citizens uh, to have a look. Mm. Okay, well, very, very interesting. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot for explaining all of that, and I uh, hope uh, all goes well with the ceremony at uh, six pm on Thursday. And um, that was Amy Ho there, who's a, a senior manager at the Hong Kong Cultural Centre with the Leisure and Cultural Services Department. Um, Thank you, and um, thanks very much to uh, our other guests and to our listeners and to everybody who wrote in this morning. Um, thanks to you, Anna. You're welcome. And thank you to our producer, Yuki Jung. Um, now, before we go to the news summary and morning brew, uh, let's have a look at the weather. It's going to be fine and dry today with a top temperature of around 23 degrees, uh, moderate north to northeasterly winds. The outlook remaining fine and dry in the next few days. Uh, still cool tomorrow morning and a rather large temperature difference between day and night. It's currently 18 degrees, humidity 50% and the red fire danger warning is in effect. The 2021 Legislative Council general election is on December 19th. Electors should wear a mask, have their temperature checked and sanitize their hands. A special queue will be set up for persons aged 70 or above or with disabilities and pregnant women. Electors must show their ID cards. Staff will use the electronic poll register to issue ballots. The geographical and functional constituency ballots should be unfolded with the marked side face down and go into the correct boxes. The new summary with Andrew Shirovsky. An academic has suggested physical education could be made compulsory at schools to extend what he called an Olympic effect. Pope Francis has returned to the Greek island of Lesbos to comfort migrants at a refugee camp and blast what he said was the indifference and self-interest shown by Europe. And thousands of people have been demonstrating in the Belgian capital Brussels against the country's COVID pass. Police estimated 8,000 people participated. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Well, not too bad at all. Good morning. Good morning. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you. Welcome to Monday. Brand new week here on Morning Brew for a Monday. 
So we're going to begin, begin as usual with Robbie McRobbie's deep and highly insightful rugby report. 10.40, we catch up with columnist, author, New York correspondent Tracy Kwan, and after 12, we are off to Vietnam for our bi-monthly check-in with Bureau Chief at Large, Neil Runciman. He's got a few newsworthy bits and pieces for you from Ho Chi Minh City today to sugarcoat the perennial COVID soap opera. Now then, I think it's time for this. culture has been our common belief. Going forward together, we will continue in our faith to build a brighter future. Abide by the rules. Support clean elections. Report corruption hotline 252663666. Hong Kong. Our advantage is you and the ICAC.